Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How's it going? Oh, really good, Anne. How are you? Good. I'm hungry. My blood sugar is low. Oh, good. Let's talk about the new ABM clinical protocol, number one on hypoglycemia. Um, I have been anxiously awaiting this revision for quite a while. And in May, um, Breastfeeding Medicine had the new ABM clinical protocol, number one, guidelines for glucose monitoring and treatment of hypoglycemia in term and late preterm neonates. And that's made 2021, right? Just, correct. just like, perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. I forget sometimes that we've been doing this podcast for most of a decade yeah. and people might not be listening uh, concurrently. At any rate, um, Nancy Wright was the first author and a lot of um, ABM protocol committee members contributed. This I think is a wonderful article and I really was torn between just like reading the whole thing, which would take a long time for those who want to get into the nitty gritty and doing a higher level summary, because I think that a lot of people, you know, don't necessarily rewrite the hospital policy on hypoglycemia, but they want to hear about the updates. So I'm going to sort of skate through the highlights and hopefully um, we can do a more in-depth presentation later on about it. I'm thinking September, October, we could maybe do a podcast on a podcast or a Zoom meeting with the first author, Dr. Nancy White. Oh, that would be wonderful. So um, this article states that the purpose is to provide guidance in the first hours and days of life in order to differentiate transitional neonatal hypoglycemia from persistent pathologic hypoglycemia. Um, to prevent clinically significant hypoglycemia in newborns, appropriately monitor the glucose levels in at-risk term and late-term neonates, maximize breast milk provision to babies, establish and preserve maternal supply during medically necessary supplementation for hypoglycemia during separation of mother and baby. Um, And I like that. I think that, you know, highlighting that it's a balance is really important. Absolutely. Um, These recommendations are based on the last six years of new information and, of course, some critical older studies. And as background, the authors remind us that the term hypoglycemia refers to low blood or plasma glucose concentration and reflects a relative imbalance between the supply and utilization of glucose, but does not consider the supply and utilization of alternative fuels um, covered under the broader concept of metabolic adaptation. Transient blood glucose in the first one to two hours of birth are common, occurring in almost all mammalian newborns. However, profound, persistent, or recurrent neonatal hypoglycemia, especially in a term healthy newborn without risk factors, 
invariably presents with abnormal clinical signs and may reflect genetic, metabolic, or endocrine dysregulation or deficits and require a more aggressive evaluation and care. Um, prenatal glucose homeostasis is dependent upon the mother for continuous transplacental transfer of glucose. And although this is obvious when I read it, I never thought about the fact that maternal insulin does not cross the placenta. And that's why those babies who are um, exposed to higher glucose levels, perhaps if their mothers have diabetes, um, start to have hyperinsulinemia prenatally that then causes problems after they are born. Right, right. Um, after birth, the neonate's blood glucose concentration falls rapidly, and then it rises to stabilize by three hours of life, even in the absence of nutritional intake. The provision of alternative fuels um, is a normal adaptive response to this transit, transiently low nutrient intake during the establishment of breastfeeding. And it results in breastfed infants tolerating low pla lower plasma glucose levels um, without manifestations or sequela. Breastfed babies have higher ketone body levels than formula-fed babies, even at the same blood glucose levels. And lactate concentrations are high in the first two to three hours of life. So, you know, um, I would just, you know, just mention that back in the 1990s, when we were talking about like babies who wouldn't latch, we weren't doing skin to skin right away. We basically just said, don't worry, the baby's gonna be fine. Like we don't have to check blood sugars and we didn't do routine blood sugar checks for these healthy babies who otherwise were fine, who just didn't feed in the first 24 hours. We're like, okay, the baby's gonna be fine. Just wanted to add that in. No, absolutely. Where I trained, it was a normal procedure for all babies to go into the newborn nursery for four hours NPO before they were fed, whether they were gonna be breastfed or formula fed. Right. And, and you know, that's a little bit shocking now considering finally that hospital I trained at is a baby friendly one and it's you know doing lots of skin to skin. But when I was newly in practice, I went to hear Jack Newman speak and he said, oh, we used to make babies NPO for 24 hours to make sure that they, you know, didn't have a esophageal, yeah, fistula. And then we would feed them sterile water and then we would feed them formula because that was what we considered to be optimal practice. And it really opened my eyes because I was like, oh, most humans will survive without eating. However, obviously we can do better than that. So the other things that I love about this article is that they really um, looked at what others have done in terms of um, different recommendations from different societies. And in order to introduce that, they talk about definitions of hypoglycemia being controversial because of a, a lack of significant correlation between their plasma glucose concentration, clinical signs, and long-term sequelae, and that there have been four major approaches to defining hypoglycemia. There's an epidemiologic statistical analysis of measured glucose values. Number two is a clinical manifestation fulfilling Whipple's triad. Number three is acute changes in metabolic endocrine response and measures of neurological function. And number four is the long-term neurological outcomes. And an expert panel convened by the US um, National Institutes of Health in 2008 concluded there has been no substantial evidence-based progress 
in defining what constitutes clinically important neonatal hypoglycemia, particularly regarding how it relates to brain injury. And as of 2020, there is still significant dispute over the definition and quote, the number. Um, mm -hmm. So there isn't one number at which we know that it is dangerous for all babies. In the epidemiologic approach, um, breastfed, formula fed, and mixed fed infants follow the same pattern of glucose values with an initial fall over the first two hours of life, followed by a gradual rise over the next 96 hours, whether they are fed or not. Um, and as expected, preterm infants drop their blood glucose more rapidly than late preterm or term infants. In the clinical manifestations approach, they note that the clinical manifestations are nonspecific occurring with a variety of other neonatal problems. And there's a very long list in this article of all sorts of um, different symptoms that babies can have from hypoglycemia. Um, and so they say, even in the presence of arbitrary low glucose level, the physician must assess the general status of the infant to rule out other disease entities. Um, and signs of hypoglycemia are categorized as neurogenic or neuroglycopenic. And that really has to do with whether or not it is um, the activation of the sympathetic nervous system versus neurological changes. So maybe the, um, so just to digress on that for people who don't quite, um, who don't know as much about that, um, when the blood sugar starts to drop, right, there is that adrenaline response to drive up blood glucose. And that's when people, because I see this so much in family medicine, where people say, I think I have hypoglycemia because when I'm hungry, I get shaky and sweaty and feel nauseated. That's that sympathetic response, right? Like the body trying to get that blood sugar up. And that's not, you know, that's normal. Like that's how our body generates glucose. But then when there truly is that little sugar, and it hasn't been able to be brought up, then you get those other responses where the brain is injured or your brain effects, neurologic effects from- Yeah, that's that. a really good explanation. Thank you. Um, Hoops et al, they mention, um, studied 23 maternal infant risk factors and signs studied and only jitteriness and tachypnea rapid breathing were statistically predictive of low blood glucose. However, jitteriness is a very nonspecific sign and likely to result in many false positives. And, and there are babies all the time that the nurse will call and say, this baby's super jittery. I got a blood glucose and it was normal. And you know, sometimes even we'll end up checking other electrolytes and we just don't really find a reason um, other than possibly some neurologic immaturity and then um, it will resolve over the first couple of days. Um, they also mention that this clinical manifestations approach um, requires that signs abate after normal glycemia is restored. Um, in the third approach, those of acute physiologic changes, they attempt to define neonatal hypoglycemia as the blood glucose level, which newborns um, under which New, newborns demonstrate counter-regulatory responses as in changes to cerebral blood flow and hormonal responses. And using neurophysiologic monitoring like EEG or visual evoked potentials or brainstem auditory evoked responses, um, this has failed to define a threshold for neurological damage. Lastly, 
the neurologic and developmental outcomes approach. And this approach is obviously the most important. What long-term is happening with these babies? And it's the most difficult to define. Animal studies suggest that the immature brain is very resistant um, through several mechanisms to damage from even profound hypoglycemia. Um, and there was a study, the CHYLD study that used 47 uh, micrograms per deciliter. And it does talk about um, how to convert from these units to international units in the article. This is 2.6 millimoles per liter. You basically divide by 18. Um, as a threshold treatment with clinicians blinded to the subcutaneous continuous glucose monitoring. And it suggested that higher interstitial, more unstable and steep rise in glucose values may be associated with neurosensory impairment at two year follow-up, which tells me that it's not just low sugar, but also over treatment um, that can cause poor neurological long-term outfit outcomes. They mentioned that in um, the UK where they had looked at legal claims made due to neurological problems with long-term neurological outcomes, the most common risk factors were low or borderline low birth weight. And the most common presenting sign was abnormal feeding behavior in many cases um, where the mothers had raised concerns that were not heeded by staff. And I think that that was really um, a point that was worth mentioning. No studies have shown to date that treating transiently low blood glucose levels results in better short-term or long-term outcomes compared with no treatment. And there's no evidence that asymptomatic hypoglycemic infants benefit from treatment. The risks of overtreatment in babies who are undergoing normal neonatal transition must be balanced against the benefits gained by aggressive treatment in patients with potentially dangerous hypoglycemia. There's probably a lot of overtreatment. Um, if you fit into the category of being a large baby or something, you get tested and then you just, the number gets treated, but the baby's actually doing fine. Absolutely. And yeah. um, we see it all the time. And, you know, it really does impact how moms feel about their breast milk and whether or not it's, it's adequate for their babies. I've had lots of uh, residents and others say, you know, is this mom's breast milk not have enough calories in it? Um, and they do address that in this article. They go on to talk about risk factors for hypoglycemia. Um, and there's um, the categories that we are all familiar with, those preterm um, and small babies, larger LGA babies, um, those whose mothers have diabetes. Um, and then they um, talk about routine monitoring of glucose. And, and really there's a lot of meat in here. And I think, you know, for people who are working in hospitals and are trying to make protocols or even buy different types of monitors, there's a lot that's worth digging into about the differences between glucose values. If you do a heel stick versus you send blood to the lab and um, continuous monitoring, which is really only used in research studies right now. Um, I want to mention, I want to give a shout out to that because if we can do continuous glucose monitoring or use more non-invasive methods for glucose monitoring, that would be, I mean, it might end up to with more treatment, more over-treatment, um, but it would also be less traumatic, you know, for sure. Yeah. Um, and 
One of the things I didn't know that was in here is that the you know placing of this subcutaneous continuous glucose monitor was found to be less painful for the baby than a heel stick. And they only have to get it, you know, once and it lasts for a week. Yes. Um, however, um, authors in the GLOW study found that when using um, the continuous glucose monitoring in healthy infants, so these were healthy infants that were just having their sugar, you know, continuously monitored and the um, study um, authors were not aware of the sugars at the time of the monitoring. Um, it said that healthy infants complete their normal metabolic transition by day four of life. And many had glucose concentrations less than 47 and they were not symptomatic or treated. Well, see, I, that's the other thing is that we can get so much more data maybe with continuous glucose monitoring on how this is so normal and that we should, you know, using like home deliveries or something, you know, where we're just not going to intervene, the baby's nursing fine. And just showing that this is completely normal and they're looking at outcomes. So we, well, with, I mean, the continued glucose monitoring is becoming so standard place in, um, in the care of diabetes that hopefully that will, that research will help us quite a bit. Yeah, they did note some limitations like having small enough sensors um, because mm -hmm. just because that technology exists for adults doesn't mean that it easily um, can be used in neonates, but definitely there is a lot of room for research to be done. Yeah. Um, they go on to summarize the research that has been done in dextrose gel treatment that really um, has a lot of research has been done since the year 2000 in randomized controlled trials that confirmed the safety and efficacy of um, using glucose gel as um, a standard of care, 200 milligrams per kilogram or 0.5 milliliters if it's a 40% dextrose gel, which is a very commonly available one. Um, the sugar baby study randomized um, babies from 35 to 42 weeks into the dextrose gel versus placebo. And um, it showed that it reduced the risks of treatment failure and was inexpensive, safe, and simple to administer. It had an overall mean blood glucose concentration after treatment that increased about 11 milligrams per deciliter or 0.65 millimoles per liter. Two-year follow-up study revealed no difference in long-term outcomes, um, although there was an unusually high incidence of neurosensory impairment in both of the groups in that study. Um, there have been other quality improvement studies. I'm going to sort of say this is something that I think everybody should read through but not touch every bit of it. Um, and that the use of prophylactic dextrose gel had mixed results. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. That's something that I was wondering when I was reading the previous paragraph. So they really hit a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, the operational thresholds, you know, what is the normal range of blood glucose? It's different for each newborn depending on a number of factors, including birth weight, gestational age, availability of energy stores, feeding status and presence or absence of disease. Any hypoglycemia management must account for the overall metabolic and physiologic status of the infant and try not to disrupt the mother-infant relationship in breastfeeding. And there have been several authors that have suggested algorithms and there's um, some nice summaries in this article. 
um, there is a table that shows the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Canadian Pediatric Society, and several other operational glucose thresholds all in table form so you can compare them. And they mentioned that the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, um, published a monograph on how to develop a policy on the prevention and management of newborn hypoglycemia, um, which I did not know. Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome because oftentimes, I mean, that's a common topic on the list of like, how can I get my hospital to change their protocol or does anyone have a protocol that they can share? Yeah, and, and I think that's really, you know, it's, it's important to share good protocols because so many people are trying to reinvent the wheel and it's, it's very difficult. Um, they made a, uh, there's a paragraph on the AAP and the Pediatric Endocrine Society um, recommendations mentioning that um, the Committee on Fetus and Newborn of the American Academy of Pediatrics um, made recommendations that were reaffirmed in 2015 and the Pediatric Endocrine Society um, also in 2015 provided expert opinion on the management of neonatal hypoglycemia. Using different approaches, the two organizations suggested different glucose levels as, appropriate, as operational thresholds. The AAP guidance covered the first 24 hours of life and the Peds Endocrine Society focused on infants beyond 48 hours of life with persistent or severe hypoglycemia. And although the Endocrine Society relied on neuroendocrine and metabolic data and child and adult normal mean glucose levels, the AAP relied on an analysis of the lower range of glucose that occurs during the establishment of postnatal glucose homeostasis. Um, newer studies added additional concerns such as rapid rise in glucose, higher glucose levels, and previously unrecognized glucose instability with continuous glucose monitoring. And so this highlights the dangers of overdiagnosis and overtreatment of asymptomatic transitional newborns and the dangers of missing a persistent hypoglycemia um, due to, for instance, a metabolic disease. And these are well-recognized by both the AAP and Peds Endocrine Society. So, you know, the authors are giving a nod to both of these recommendations while highlighting the fact that neither of them is a complete recipe for what to do in these yeah. first yeah. hours to days of life. Yeah, such a quiet minor. <laughs> um, as far as supporting the mother and family, the um, authors point out that it can be extremely traumatic to the family when they're normal and healthy newborn develops hypoglycemia and that mothers should be explicitly reassured that there is nothing wrong with their milk and that supplementation is usually temporary. Having the mother hand express or pump um, can help her to feed her infant and overcome feelings of inadequacy and establish a full milk supply. And then they talked a little bit about women with pre-existing or gestational diabetes and how there have been some studies about antenatal milk expression um, that have shown it to be safe from 36 weeks gestation, but did not really change the proportion of infants admitted to the NICU. In another effort to facilitate breastfeeding while maintaining glucose stability, a hospital established a new hypoglycemia algorithm with a lower threshold, a first blood glucose at 90 minutes of life, 
encouraged continuous skin-to-skin -skin care and delayed the bath for 12 hours. Um, and this actually did result in the babies um, having a lower volume of supplementation. Yeah, and more stability in glucose. Sorry. Oh yeah, I, I was sorry. I was going to say that um, bathing. Um, it seems that the improved breastfeeding rates associated with delaying the bath seem to be more associated with getting cold and dropping their sugar than actually, you know, whatever the act of bathing is or being separated. Yeah, absolutely. I think hospital practice is so so important. Um, another quality improvement project, or they said, you know, quality improvement projects often use bundles of changes that make it hard to tell what individual change is making the difference. There was another U.S. study where babies um, 35 weeks or greater with at least one risk factor for hypoglycemia had early skin-to-skin -skin care, early breastfeeding, and obtaining blood glucose in asymptomatic infants at 90 minutes of life, which decreased their NICU transfer rate from 17% to 3% and saved $100,000 a year. Wow, that's great, that's amazing. Yeah, and then there are a list of general management recommendations um, and management for documented hypoglycemia and management of um, supporting mother and family when babies are separated, as well as recommendations for future research. Yeah. And a table, um, that is um, more based on, you know, if the baby has risk factors, if the baby is totally healthy. And so I would encourage everybody to go and look at the article, read through the, you know, 20 or so recommendations and look at that table, because I think that that is really, um, they've done a great job in summarizing and talking about when to give glucose, when to give IV. I think the most important things are obviously if a baby is symptomatic, particularly with neurological signs and symptoms, delays should not be um, done to start IV glucose and gel should only be given if it's, you know, they're having difficulty getting IV access. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the other thing to remember too, I think there's some, uh, there's some evidence that if the baby is receiving IV glucose, um, that continued breastfeeding actually helps them get off their IV faster, right? Yes, the authors did talk about that and um, that lower concentrations were needed um, yeah. of the glucose. And so just being treated shouldn't be a reason to stop breastfeeding. Right. You know, I, when, I, when I look at the rate of non-latching in my clinic, I noticed, and I, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast probably several times, that over the years, as we've done skin to skin immediately postpartum, I see so much less non-latching. You know, the babies who won't latch when they leave, the, the struggles that the parents have to get that baby to latch. But then the other thing now is just getting those bottles early because of hypoglycemia or concerns about blood sugar. And if we can supplement, you know, using the dextrose gel and supplementing at the breast as much as possible for babies who are actually able to feed well um, using a you know feeding tube with some donor milk seems like it would be ideal. Like we have to remember that these babies are going to leave and they need to continue to feed. Unfortunately, we live in a country in the United States where we have access to bottles and other means, but in low-resource countries, you give a baby a bottle early on and 
you know, a baby may not have access to, to milk, right? So. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention, there is also in this article before the hundred or so references, a um, parent information handout on newborn, oh, on newborn hypoglycemia that was um, adapted from um, the Queensland Health in Australia, which is nice and I think um, would be a wonderful thing for people to check out and use or adapt to their own practice setting that talks about, you know, what's going on and what are we going to do and how to protect breastfeeding. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. And that's great because people can actually bring it in and show the nursing staff or the hospital staff, like, do you have you ever seen this? Like, how are you supposed to support me? <laughs> because they need as much advocacy as possible. Um, yeah, and I think that, that the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine plans to do um, patient education handouts for all of their protocols from now on. Really I was nice. so excited to see this. I was like, oh, this is a thing that we've been needing. Really neat. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that more like JAMA does that too. The Journal of the American Medical mm. Association has nice handouts too. So I just well, really want to applaud these authors. I think they did a, a fantastic job um, catching us all up on the, the recent literature and explaining a, a very complex topic. And, and then we can go and, you know, take that to our own institutions where we're dealing with, you know, we have to make a policy that is pragmatic and works with the resources that we have. So, you know, I work in a hospital where if a baby has low blood sugar and they're being breastfed and the family is not wanting to supplement with, you know, formula before we had donor milk, they would, you know, keep breastfeeding, keep breastfeeding, baby would go to the NICU, baby would get formula. And so that now having that other option of donor milk is really helpful. Um, but also mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, anything that when a baby is asymptomatic and really looks well, we can do to help keep them from going to the NICU, I think is a good idea because once they go, it's so hard to get them back. Yes, yes, then they're on a feeding protocol and it's not as physiologic and yeah, there's a whole number of issues there for sure. That the NICU could be working on, you know, the NICUs could change, but you know, it's like a different population of babies compared to their- Yeah, they have a very different family. mindset. They have yeah. sick babies and they will be treating babies as such. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I wanna to emphasize too, you know, I think that I've heard some people say, that donor milk doesn't really help to alleviate low blood sugars as well as formula does. So they like to use formula. And, um, and there's some evidence that that's not true, right? That donor milk does actually work. Um, and then the other issue is that if formula is going to be used, there's good evidence now that introducing small amounts of cow's milk-based formula early on in like the first three days, and then having that baby go home and be exclusively breastfed markedly increases the risk of cow's milk allergy in that child. So if they're going to use formula, they should use a um, like a hydrolyzed formula or an elemental formula instead. And the other thing that I've heard lately is people suggesting that using a higher calorie formula um, is going to help babies. And I, I there's no evidence for that. Well, it just makes sense that it would take longer for them to digest it, right? Because they're fuller. And then the sugars are going to stay higher longer, but oh God, you know, 
what's wrong with feeding the baby more often. So, well, there's a, yeah, it's definitely a work in progress. So um, that's a great protocol. I agree this, you know, kudos to everyone for doing this for us. This is a huge gift and it's a labor of love, right? These people are not paid to do this work. So, yeah. Yes, I would yes. like to thank them all. Yes. Thanks a lot, Karen. It was good sure. to you and we'll catch up another time for our next podcast. Sounds great. Have a wonderful day. Too. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.